good morning. It's good to be together and to worship the Lord. And as we continue to worship this morning, would you open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses, verse 1 to verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, hear the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together this morning. Oh Father, we come to you this morning and we worship you, we praise your name for you have done marvelous things. We've been reflecting upon the marvelous things you have done through your son. You have sent him in the likeness of man as a servant, humbled to the point of death. And you have exalted him above all. And now he reigns as a glorious and sovereign king. And Father, this morning we come and we bend our knees before King Jesus and we worship him. We kiss the Son this morning. We are so thankful for his reign, his gracious reign, his reign of love. We praise you that he has brought us into the kingdom through his own blood. And he has given us so many gracious promises. If we endure, we will reign with him. And Father, we hope in these gracious promises. Oh, Father, we rejoice this morning that you are our strength, you are our Savior, and you are our shepherd. We pray this morning that through the word that you would shepherd our souls, that you would care for us, that you would direct our desires and our affections, that you would shape our thinking, that you would carry us forward. Oh, Father, we pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So we're still in the Apostles' Creed this week, and I just want to read the middle portion as it concerns the Lord Jesus again. So just hear these beautiful words. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the last two weeks we've been reveling, we've been worshiping in the gospel as the Son of God has been revealed. And and the Apostles' Creed faithfully unfolds the person and the work of the Lord Jesus to us. And it does it with terse and tight descriptions. Was conceived, born, suffered, crucified, died, buried. And those these descriptions of Jesus and his work for us are brief, they're, they're snappy, they do indeed lead us up to the mountaintop, and at this mountaintop of Christology, we can look out and we see the glories of the Son of God. The creed reveals a panoramic view of our Savior, spanning from his preexistence as the eternal Son of God, to his taking on flesh and blood and bones, to his humiliating work as a mediator of mankind to his exaltation as the Son of God in power, even to his future coming as judge of all mankind. While the creed is brief, it's short, it's terse, it does pack a theological punch for us. There's care and precision just evident in the lines of the creed. And we have a need for this precision. We have need for our minds to be shaped by carefully presented theology. We have need for our understanding of the gospel to be sharpened through wise ordering of the creed. And we all need to be further educated in the things of God and His Son. And this is what the the creed does for us. It shapes our minds as we think about Jesus. And if we have eyes of faith this morning, coupled with soft and receptive hearts, the creed should not be merely dry theological matter. It can be dry theological matter, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't just be the heaping up of information about what God has done, what Jesus has done, what the Spirit has done. Rather, it should be a worship song planted within our hearts because it recounts and testifies to us the goodness, the wonder of our great God. He has kept steadfast love with His people, and the creed reveals this. The creed should make our our mouths sing like the psalmist does in Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And as we reflect upon the Apostles' Creed for one more week, the the creed should leave a good and sweet taste in our mouths because it leads us to see the glory and beauty of Jesus as our Savior. The creed should lead us to be refreshed in Christ. So this morning we take up the third part of the creed as it concerns the person and the work of Jesus. And in this third portion, as I've divided it up, the the creed reveals the climax of the gospel. The climax of the gospel is this, the, the vindicated, reigning, and coming incarnate Son of God. And so we noted already this morning that the, the creed is carefully constructed. It's carefully thought out, and the creed will not let us be lopsided in our understanding of Christ and in our proclamation of the gospel. It will not let us just hope in the incarnation of the Son of God, because that would not be sufficient. It will not let us just stop at the death of Christ, for if we stopped at the death of Christ, we would be guilty of what Paul says to the Corinthians. 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Rather, the creed reveals to us the whole Christ revealed in all of his works. And so we can say this morning, just as much as our salvation is dependent upon the incarnation of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, it is all the more dependent even upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his heavenly session at the right hand of God the Father, and the hope of his future coming as judge. And so we need the whole gospel to be whole people. We need both the humiliation of the Son and the exaltation of the Son. They need to be wedded together in our minds. For without this upward shoot of the gospel proclamation, the gospel is robbed of its joy and its strength and its glory for us. And so as we consider this morning the third part of the creed, the exaltation of the Son of God, I want to go after two questions. First question, what is the logic behind these words in the third part of the creed? What is the logic of vindication? Why is it important? The second question, what difference does vindication, what difference do these words make for our Christianity? So as we look into the creed this morning, as we reflect upon the words, rose again, is seated, will come again, We have to ask, why are these words so important to the gospel story? Why would the gospel story, why would gospel proclamation be incomplete without these words? Why are they logically necessary? And we can answer, these realities are so important. In fact, we can say they are necessary because they cut to the heart of the matter of the veracity of Jesus' claims about himself. Is Jesus who he is? says he is? Does the Lord Jesus speak truly about himself? Is he truly the Son of God? Is he truly Lord? Is he truly a competent and able Savior? And what happens after Jesus' death proves this issue, these questions, one way or another. And what these events offer, Jesus' resurrection, his seating, his promise of coming again, offers us vindication. They set the record straight about the claims, the identity, the work of Jesus. They give us assurance this morning. So perhaps this this feels a bit intellectual this morning, and so we can bring this matter of vindication down to earth. And we can illustrate the importance of vindication from the life of Job, and we can move from the life of Job to the life of the Lord Jesus and see vindication as an essential matter of the gospel. So who is Job? Job's a character in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1 verse 1 tells us about Job. The text reads, There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And if you want to understand the book of Job, the story about Job, we have to have this central piece of information in mind. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Job was blameless. Job was righteous. Job feared God. Job turned away from evil. What happens to Job in this story? Well, suffering happens to Job. Testing comes to Job. 
Job loses property. He loses his children. He loses his health. He loses all of his wealth. And his suffering is profound and great. So great that his wife counsels him. It would just be best if you cursed God and just died, Job. But even in all of this, Job keeps his integrity before the Lord. So as you move through the story of Job, after Job's suffering, soon Job's friends come up and they come to comfort him and look upon him and think through these matters with him. And as Job's friends show up and they see Job, they're presented with a great problem. They know who Job claims to be. They know his reputation. Job is supposed to be a righteous man. He's supposed to be a good man. He's supposed to be blameless. He's supposed to be a man who fears God. But his present circumstances do not seem to support these facts. And they question to Job's face, are you really who you say you are? Can we really trust you? Is Job chapter 1 verse 1 true? And their judgment as they assess Job and his circumstances is that Job can't be who he says he is. They reason, who that was innocent ever perished? Or when were the upright ever cut off? Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So what are Job's friends saying? Well, according to his friends, Job suffers because he's unrighteous. If Job were blameless and upright, if you were a man who feared God, if you were a man who turned away from evil, these things would not be happening to him. So according to Job's friends, because of Job's suffering, Job can't be who he says he is. And so what does Job need? Well, he needs vindication. He needs the record to be set straight about his matter of suffering, about the justice of the Lord, and of his own status before this just and holy God. And as we draw near to the end of the book of Job, the voices of his friends fade away, the voice of Job fades away, and one powerful voice draws near in the narrative. One powerful voice takes center stage. In the world, in the, the Lord draws near in the, in the whirlwind, and these closing chapters, the Lord sets the record straight. He provides a double vindication. First, the Lord comes and he sets the record straight about himself because a lot of questions get raised in the book of Job about God's own righteousness, God's own holiness, God's own wisdom. And the Lord vindicates himself. He is indeed righteous. He is indeed wise. And he does this both before Job and his friends. There's also a second vindication as well, the vindication of Job. The, jo the Lord sets straight the identity, the status of Job before his friends and his community. Job chapter 42, verses 7 through 8, provide Job's vindication. The Lord said to Aliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends who accused him, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So there's this refrain we hear in these two verses. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
And so we see that vindication is essential to the story of Job. It settles this dispute between Job and his friends and his community. It sets the record straight concerning who Job actually is. Is Job 1 verse 1 right? Well, this vindication shows that it indeed is right. It reveals true reality, and it teaches us who we can believe. And so when we think about the the life of Job, within the canon of Scripture, his life, his suffering, his vindication is like divine foreshadowing as we read the story, this one big story about Jesus. And it foreshadows a greater dispute, a greater need for vindication, a dispute where the stakes are much higher, a dispute where not just words are exchanged like in the book of Job, but where blood is spilt. A dispute that not just affects the fate of one man like Job, but the fate of the entire world. And so we need to see the logic of vindication in the life and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we can trace out Jesus' story in similar fashion to that of Job's. They both follow the same narrative arc. They both follow the same storyline. So Job chapter 1 verse 1 introduces Job to us. And as we go to the Gospels, each Gospel writer takes pains to introduce the Lord Jesus to us. So when we go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew confesses Jesus to be the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he goes on to say that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a long-awaited Savior. We go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark declares that Jesus is the Son of God. We go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke professes Jesus to be the Son of the Most High God, a King whose kingdom shall never end. We can go to the book of John, and John teaches us, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a battle rages around these statements throughout the pages of the Gospels. Is this Jesus really who He says He is? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Savior? Is he really God incarnate? Are these claims true? And as we turn the pages of the Gospels, answers are given to these questions. So just like in the story of Job, his friends draw near, they assess the situation, and they render their verdict. In the story of Jesus, people draw near, they assess him, what he's doing, and they render his verdict. So who is Jesus truly? Well, the scribes come along and they're befuddled by Jesus' power and authority and they answer, Jesus is a man possessed by Satan. Who is Jesus to the scribes? He's not the king or Messiah of God. He's an agent of the evil one. Jesus' family members draw near and assess who Jesus is. They're incredulous of him. The way Jesus teaches and the way he goes about, the way he gathers crowds around himself, the way he heals, the claims he makes. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, he must be out of his mind. He's he's crazy. Well, the Pharisees, they draw near to the Lord Jesus and they're jealous of his popularity. They're perplexed by his new teachings. They're fearful that the crowds are going after him. Who is Jesus? Well, to the Pharisees, he's a a false prophet, someone who invents new teachings, someone who's going to draw the people of God astray. And the chief priests weigh in. They draw near to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's a blasphemer. 
and as a blasphemer, he is one who should die. And the crowds decide, who is Jesus to the crowds? On the climactic scene, they would rather have Barabbas, a murderer, before the Lord Jesus himself. And even in Rome, the world power comes onto the scene and speaks to the matter. Who is Jesus according to Rome? Well, he's a weak and impotent insurrectionist. He's a wannabe king, one who is to be mocked, one is to be dressed up and led around as a, a plaything. And as we continue to read the Gospels, when the Lord Jesus is lifted up on the cross and criminals are hanging to his left and to his right, we question, are these statements true? Who is Jesus? And in this gruesome crucifixion scene that the Gospel writers paint for us, the taunts of the onlookers fill our ears. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. The gospel writers are leading us. They're they're prodding us along. Who is Jesus? Is he really who he says he is? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Savior? And it's here that we need vindication. We need the record set straight concerning who Jesus is and his claims. And the creed announces precious news to us this morning, words of vindication. The creed says, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. The scribes make their judgment. Jesus' family members make their judgment. The Pharisees, the crowds, the priests, the Romans all pass their verdict upon Jesus and who they think he is. However, in the resurrection, the ascension, the heavenly session of Jesus, God, like in the book of Job, draws near in a whirlwind and he sets the record straight. Jesus is who he says he is. And this is how the scriptures argue and point. What is Jesus' resurrection all about? What is the logic behind it? Well, Jesus' resurrection proves, it is sure proof of Jesus' exalted sonship. Paul argues in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, this very point. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How was he declared to be the Son of God in power? Through his resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is that the resurrection is God's announcement to the entire world that indeed Jesus is who he says he is. What Mark says as he begins his gospel, Jesus, the Son of God, is true. We can go to the ascension. What is the ascension of Jesus all about? Jesus' heavenly exaltation confirms that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. God draws near in the whirlwind and he says Jesus indeed is Lord of all. Of all. And Paul reasons this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Paul argues, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus' exaltation, his exaltation, his ascension confirms and cements 
that Jesus' claim of kingship over all reality is true. We can ask, what is Jesus' seating at the right hand of God all about? Well, Jesus' heavenly session, his seating at the right hand of God, certifies, it confirms to us that Jesus is an able and competent Savior. And this is an argument woven throughout the entire book of Hebrews. The author drives at this point again and again, Jesus is an able Savior because he is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we can have absolute confidence in this Savior because he's seated, he's competent, he's able. Hebrews 7, verse 25 argues, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them because he is firmly seated at God's right hand. And just as vindication was essential to the story of Job, vindication is essential to the story of Jesus. Because without these events, without the resurrection of Jesus, without the ascension of Jesus, without his seating, without the promise of his coming judgment, Jesus is just another failed Messiah. He is just another wannabe Savior. He's just like all the other kings of the earth. They came, they had their day in history. Now they're just a footnote on some page in some obscure book. But Jesus' vindication sets the record straight. It certifies his messiahship. It demonstrates his divine sonship. It stamps and reign his permanence. It sets his stone, his ability to save. And these glorious events press upon our souls the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. Jesus is who he says he is. So we've answered the the first question this morning. What is the logic of the creed before us? We need this story of vindication to have a complete gospel. So we can move, we can pursue the second question. What difference does the vindication of Jesus, what difference does this logic make for our Christianity. And I want to offer you four observations this morning. We can make many more observations, but just four initial ways that these words of vindication lead us as God's people. First, the vindication of Jesus gives us gospel hope. Believers, the, the creed holds out to us excellent news for our souls. Christ is risen. Christ is exalted. He's reigning, and he's coming for us. And this is news that we need to cling to absolutely every single day. In this world, we're filled with anxiety and fear. In this world, we see the name of Christ being maligned. In this fallen and evil world, we're bruised and battered. Our expectations are daily unmet by so many different things. Disappointments creep into our souls And the vindication of Jesus, the creed, as it preaches to us, does a faithful, does a necessary work. It calls us to look upward and outside of ourselves. The creed points us to true reality. Jesus is indeed who he says he is. He has been raised conquering death. He has ascended. He has been exalted. He is currently seated and he is reigning over all things as the sovereign king. And he will return for us. So how do we fight anxiety and fear? How do we fight 
depression and disappointment and lost expectations? How do we go to battle against doubt as it draws near to our souls? The creed leads us this morning, we must fix our eyes upon the vindicated Jesus. It is here when we fix our eyes upon the ascended, the resurrected, the reigning, coming Jesus that we can have rock-solid hope for our souls. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, give us assurance. Jesus comes to John and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. And because Jesus is vindicated, we can fear not. Second, the, the vindication of Jesus, the way the creed leads us, must shape our gospel proclamation, must shape our gospel presentation to the world. Our aim as the church, as followers of Jesus, must be to be in tune, in sync with the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. We must follow the apostles' lead. Where they placed emphasis, we need to place emphasis. Where they labored hard, we need to labor hard. And in the apostolic preaching of the gospel throughout the New Testament, the vindication of Jesus takes central stage in the proclamation of the gospel. It's the climax of their preaching. It's the crescendo. Their voices lift higher. Greater emphasis is placed here. They all point to Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his session, his second coming. And when they preach the gospel, they constantly press upon their hearers the reality of a vindicated Christ. We can just follow the apostles' lead. What does Peter do at Pentecost? There's a swarming and questioning crowd around him. And he presses this crowd with the reality of a vindicated Christ. He brings the crowd from the crucifixion to the resurrection, from the resurrection to the ascension, from the ascension to Jesus' present kingship. In the climax of Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he preaches. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Or we can think of Stephen as he was standing before the Sanhedrin, giving account of Jesus. In the climax of his witness before the authorities, what does he say? Well, he cries out, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what does Peter say before the Gentiles? Does his message change? No, his preaching still has the same rhythm. It still has the same crescendo. He leads the Gentiles from the death of Christ to Christ's vindication as king. His preaching again climaxes. He says, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And we could continue on this morning. We could just keep charting out the book of Acts. We could look at the writings of Paul, the preaching of Paul, but the pattern is evident. Faithful preaching of the gospel must climax in the vindication of Jesus. 
Faithful preaching of the gospel must bring people to see the present reign of Jesus. It must bring people to see Jesus as the exalted Savior. It must bring people to see Jesus as the coming righteous judge. And so we have to be sure that in our gospel proclamation, we're preaching a full gospel, that we're keeping in sync with the apostles, that where they place emphasis, we place emphasis, that where they sing loudly, we sing loudly, where they boldly announce, we boldly announce as well. Third observation this morning. The vindication of Jesus must fuel and propel our labors in and for the sake of the gospel. We must view all of our kingdom labor, all of our kingdom work, all of our mission in light of the vindicated king. As Christ's servants, we do not labor out of fear or timidity, but we can go forward in mission with holy boldness and even holy confidence knowing that our Savior is the reigning King, that He is firmly planted upon the throne, bringing all things to pass that pleases Him. And so our great need, especially in our day, is to have firmly placed in our minds the exalted status of Jesus as we go on mission to make disciples of all nations. Jesus' words in Matthew 28 must form the bulwark of our faith. How does Jesus encourage us before he sends us on mission? Well, he says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's here that our confidence lies in our mission. It's here that we can have holy boldness. Our Savior is reigning. And I don't think it's possible to overestimate or to overthink these words or to spend too much time considering them as we go on mission. And with these words and this glorious reality of Jesus and his present kingship before us, we can go in strength and in confidence ministering to unbelieving friends, ministering to unbelieving family members. With these words, we can go out to our city and minister. With these words, we can even go to the ends of the earth and have holy confidence. Our our king is reigning. Fourth. Jesus' vindication after his suffering, after his crucifixion, after his death, gives us precious hope when we face suffering ourselves. For if we truly belong to Jesus, if we're truly wed to him, if we're truly united to him, Jesus' story shapes our story. There's this arc in Jesus' story. There's humiliation, and then there's exaltation. And if we belong to Jesus, that arc will be our story as well. And though we face suffering and death today, we can assert that suffering and death will not be the end for us. Just as Christ was vindicated from all of these realities, so too we. We will share in Christ's resurrection. We will even share, as Paul argues throughout his letters, we will share in his reign and even the coming judgment. Jesus' vindication should shape and give hope to our suffering. Charles Simeon was a pastor, and he suffered much. And a friend came to Charles Simeon one day and asked him, how could you endure so much suffering in your life and in your ministry? And Simeon, as a wise pastor, gives hope to this fellow brother, and he, he writes, 
he gets the arc of the story of Jesus and he applies it to his own soul. He says, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. And Simeon got the storyline of Jesus. Jesus is the exalted head. He, he was humiliated. Now he's vindicated. And as Christ's followers, we too soon will be vindicated. We have blessed assurance in that. So my prayer for you this morning is that these words of the creed, as the creed faithfully proclaims to us the vindicated Christ, that the creed will lead you in worship this morning, lead you in greater love of Jesus as King. And we're going to close uh, with the words of the creed again. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. Good news for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we worship you this morning. We praise you for Christ Jesus and his vindication. Our Savior is living. He has been resurrected. He has ascended. He is seated. He is currently reigning, and he is going to come for his people. He is going to judge this world, and he is going to set all matters right. We will, too, have a great vindication day. No, Father, as we reflect upon Jesus and his kingship, would you give us holy confidence? Would you give us holy boldness in Jesus? Would his present state inform our minds, inform the way we walk, the way we live, the way we worship? Oh, Father, would you lead us on this morning? Would you shepherd us with your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.